Welcome to AZMCast, the competitive emergency medicine podcast. Our goal on AZMCast is to demonstrate the knowledge, skills, and the approach to help you, the listener, be a top-notch emergency provider. Our panel of emergency specialists will go head-to-head as they navigate a case from the ring down to the workup to the dispo. Panelists will be awarded points for their quick wit, prioritization of tasks, and their clinical application of evidence-based medicine. However, they will lose points for weak arguments that rely on experience-based medicine and the use of banned, unhelpful jargon like gestalt or high index of suspicion or just because I feel like it. The panelists with the most points at the end of each episode will have free reign during the art of EM to rant about whatever aspect of EM is near and dear to their hearts at that given moment. We encourage you, the listener, to pause the podcast at each segment and consider your own approach before going on with the discussion. And our hope is that you will develop a prioritized, evidence-based approach to emergency medicine that will carry you into your next shift. And now, on today's episode, we present for your edutainment, The Ringdown. During the ringdown, points will be awarded for an appropriately focused history and physical with prioritized questions and evidence-based medicine backing. Points will be deducted for weak arguments or missing important elements. This is a 35-year-old female coming in by EMS with back pain. But before we get started uh, with the case, let's introduce our panel and give you, the listener, a chance to put yourself in their shoes and consider how you would prepare for this case. Dr. Vivian Ng is an assistant professor of emergency medicine and the fellowship director for medical simulation fellowship here at the University of Arizona. Thank you, Viv, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Dr. Jenny Plitt is a clinical assistant professor of emergency medicine at the University of Arizona. Hi, Jenny. Hey, how's it going, Aaron? And lastly, still here on the same recording from last time, Brian Drummond is a clinical associate professor of emergency medicine here at the U of A. Welcome, Brian. Well, as I was saying, Aaron, (laughs) no, good to be here again and again and again. So uh, this is a 36-year-old female coming in by EMS with back pain. Uh, Temperature is 37.6, heart rate is 118, blood pressure is 170 over 90, respiratory rate of 22, satting 98% on room air. So we see a lot of back pains that come in. Um, I feel like we still see an inordinate amount of back pains that will come in by EMS. So Vivian, as you read this page out, because all page outs are uh, coming through the phone, um, what is going through your mind? What are your high risk differentials that you're thinking about? So the first thing going through my mind are the abnormalities on her vital signs. So her heart rate, she's tachycardic to 118, hypertensive to 170 over 90, which could mean anything, could be pain related, could be um, patient with a history of hypertension, not taking their medications, and she's tachypneic. Right now, she's not febrile or hypoxic, so that makes me a little bit less concerned about maybe an acute infection. The things that are probably running through my head the most uh, since she came in by EMS is, is she a trauma patient? Is her back pain due to some kind of trauma? Or is it referred pain from her abdomen or perhaps a retroperitoneal cause? Um, 35-year-old female, pregnancy is obviously going to be part of my thought process. So this could represent a topic pregnancy or some kind of ovarian pathology. And despite her young age, she could still present with things like an aortic dissection if she also had markings, which we don't know yet. 
Um, having taken care of a father-daughter pair of Marfan's patients, both who presented with aortic dissections um, on two back-to-back shifts, certainly not uncommon. I'm going to give and you points just for having to have worked those two back-to-back shifts. That sounds <laughs> awful. Yeah, pretty great. And then you get into your uh, slightly less acute differential diagnosis, but I think you prepped me at three, so I won't give you my... Jenny, you can take the boring part. What are your less than exciting differential diagnoses? Um, I mean, the the good old pyelonephritis, muscle spasm, my very favorite, any kind of muscle strain, herniated disc, kidney stones, ovarian cysts, you name it, appendicitis, those could all cause back pain. So is anything with the uh, chief complaint of back pain, gonna make you run to this room, Jenny, and wait for the patient to get here. A 35-year-old female with a chief complaint of back pain, I'm absolutely not meeting EMS at the door for this patient. Uh, I'm gonna sit on that one for a minute. So, I mean, unless she's screaming and writhing in pain and the nurse calls me to come to bedside because, you know, she is being histrionic or just needs pain control, uh, I'm probably going to go see her when I can see her. I think it'd be a little bit different, uh, like Vivian said, if she was an elderly person with that hypertension, with acute onset of back pain, I'd be a little bit more concerned about things like a AAA or an aortic dissection. But if she doesn't look marfanoid, those are definitely lower on my differential, just given her age. Um, And she is tachycardic and hypertensive, but Again, like Vivian said, that can certainly be due to pain. Um, but, you know, I don't want to miss my sepsis kudos. And she would definitely fire a safe alert with her tachypnea and her tachycardia. Um, I'm just kidding. I don't think I'd throw in the whole sepsis order set on her yet unless uh, I'd have to talk with her first to get a little bit more information. Oh, Jenny lost points. More vancomycin. Safe alert. <laughs> Kidding. I would do a 30 cc per kilo bolus and vanc and cefepime and an MRI, all you the can, things. You can have our medical director give you some points. I'm not giving you points for that. Brian, I'm going to ask you, it because you are the least excited about any of these ring downs, is there anything that somebody could include with this ring down that would make you excited enough to get out of your chair and go see the patient when they arrive? She comes in a spit mask. That would, I love spit mass. Like I'll get up and go to the bedside. Cause I just want to, I want to see that action. I mean, that's just, that's live action. You want to jump, jump on it like the croc hunter or something. I mean, that's just, those are great if they're in that. Um, but in terms of the rest of it, like vital signs, you're going to have to give me something more uh, than, uh, than back pain and those vitals to get me up. So they're going to have to have plus something. Back I do pain, unconscious, that. unresponsive. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which back pain, unconscious, unresponsive, that's just they're awake when you get there because they already give them Narcan, and that's not exciting anymore. I mean, we. I want, like, <laughs> Rosk and back pain, you know, or something like that. I want, like, fell from a Mack truck while uh, surfing, you know, or something like that. Um, that would be a cool one, a back pain from road surfing. I, I would get up for that one. To Brian's credit, though, yeah, to Brian's credit, I mean, someone who comes in a spit mask, you can present with back pain from having your hands cuffed behind your back or being tackled by the PED department. So something like a PCP or a drug intoxication, hypertensive tachycardic tachypnic, absolutely. Um, you know, I would do a walk by. I wouldn't necessarily meet them. Well, I might meet them up. I might do a walk by and then I may just walk away. But um, 
Brian has a totally incredible point there with the spit mask. So you could be dealing with someone who has uh, acute delirium. Okay. Well, you are uh, very uh, disappointed to find the patient does not have a spit mask when you arrive. However, she is writhing on the stretcher and she is screaming and she is making quite a scene. So Jenny, other than the safe alert, uh, what are you going to do for this patient? What are your interventions? Are you just going to try to, are you going to howl dollar anyway? Maybe go get a spit mask to make it more of a scene? First of all, I'm very upset that you took my points away for the safe, not doing the safe alert, but okay. We have negative <laughs> numbers if you want to push this even further. Wow. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, once this patient gets here, she's writhing on the stretcher. She seems to be in pain. Probably, you know, that's, you know, one of the things I think of is the kidney stone dance. Um, but my priorities when she gets to the room are just getting her on the monitor, getting another set of vital signs. Um, and if she's looking visibly uncomfortable with severe pain, I want to get a large IV and get her some pain medication, um, She's a little bit tachycardic, so I'd probably be giving her a bolus of normal saline. And I think the most important thing I can do for her is really to get a good uh, history and physical exam to figure out what my next steps are and what else I need to do for this patient. I mean, with the chief complaint of back pain, I, I want to include like a good neurologic exam in that um, if it's midline pain or flank pain, history of IV drug use to rule out epidural abscess. Um, or she could be having an ectopic pregnancy, like Vivian said, which could cause back pain. So, Jenny, there's, a lot uh, of questions. there's a lot of questions that you could ask this patient, but she is screaming and writhing and really doesn't want to do uh, the full third-year medical student history. So you being a wonderful doctor, which you really are, um, what directed questions are you going to ask her? What are the highest priority questions for this patient that you need to know so that you can then try to get a better history once she's a little more settled? So after my ample history. Um, <laughs> That's five questions at least. <laughs> into my ample history, I guess the first question I'm going to ask her is if, if she has allergies so I can give her some pain medicine so I can talk to her. I think um, 100%. Yeah, I mean, that's the number one question. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, beyond, beyond those basic questions, if I could just pick a few that are the most important are was a sudden onset or was it a slow progression and you know, where is the pain and um, any history of IV drug use and any urinary symptoms are probably a few of the big ones that I would ask her. Okay. So you ask the patient, she says, um, I, I have no allergies. Uh, the pain just came on. I was sleeping, taking a nap. And all of a sudden I woke up with this terrible pain and it's all over here on my left side. It hurts so bad. And it's coming down into my groin. It hurts so bad. And I've never done drugs. Any other questions you have for me as the patient? I have so many questions. Um, do you, are you pregnant? First of all, no way am I pregnant. I have, <laughs> I have they all say that. Not a, not a chance. They I've all got, say that. Doesn't I've got an IUD that. and I've got an Explanon and we use condoms and I haven't been with anybody in a year. There's no way I could be pregnant. And no uterus. <laughs> so <laughs> other questions, I guess. I mean, those things, what you said, acute onset of pain, uh, left-sided, so not midline. 
I'm thinking more along the lines of if it's kind of upper flank, I'm thinking more along the lines of kidney stone because it came in all of a sudden. I would still keep things like ectopic uh, pregnancy in my differential because you can definitely have referred pain to your back and it was all of a sudden or ovarian torsion. So I'd be bringing my ultrasound into the room so I can do a fast exam and I could also get a look at her kidneys and see if I see any hydrogrosis. Excellent. All right. Um, Vivian, do you have any questions you want to add on to what she has? I want to know if she has a history of kidney stones or urinary tract infections or pilo. And I'd like to know her last menstrual period because unless she is on the next one with an IUD and doesn't have a uterus, I'm checking her pregnancy test no matter what she tells me. Yes. Even if she tells me her LMP was a month ago. I trust the patient who says they can't be pregnant. Um, <laughs> we already covered allergies and just because of drug-drug interactions, I would like to know if she is on any medications or has any renal disease. All right. So the patient denies any of the things that you are asking. And the history that you get is that she is a 35-year-old female coming in by EMS with a gradual ache for a few days, but now 30 minutes of sudden onset worsening of left-sided flank pain. It's severe and it radiates down into her groin. Uh, she has no fevers feels like she's cold and chills and can't get uh, comfortable. She had non-bloody, non-bilious emesis. She has a history of diabetes and hypertension for which she takes metformin and hydrochlorothiazide. She's had no surgeries, is not allergic to anything. And the review of systems doesn't matter because it just never seems to matter for these patients. All right, Brian, uh, you're doing a quick once over as uh, Jenny is rolling in the ultrasound. Um, what are you trying to figure out uh, with her back pain? How are you going to use your exam to uh, whittle down your differential even further? Um, I'm going to, well, I, I, ma'am, we're going to get you into a warm, pleasant gown and completely disrobe the patient and dress her appropriately at the bedside because that's standard practice. Um, so after I, you know, and to be honest, the first thing, my question was going to be, does she have allergies? And the second one is, can I give you something for pain? Mm. Uh, those are my only two questions I would ask because I find a lot of these patients, it's hard to get a, um, a good exam or, so, or even a history sometimes until you get them to a reasonable state. So now that she's in a reasonable state, to be honest, I'm just going to push on her belly and back um, mm -hmm. while I'm talking to her. So if she has no abdominal tenderness and is not distended, that takes a lot of things off the table immediately for me. Um, and then I'll probably push up and down her spine, her CVA area, and ask her where this back pain really is and take a look at her skin. Make sure there's no zoster or something else going on. Check in CVA tenderness for pilo. Um, you know, if it was a trauma concern, you'd look for, you know, colon sign and some of the classic, you know, gray turner. You're looking for bruising or something else that, you know, maybe this is a DV case and she's on drugs or something. I mean, we, we get narrowed down a lot of times, but we want to stay broad. Uh, in these patients. I mean, it's screaming what you know, what you think it's going to be, but you just, you do a quick look around to make sure those other ones are lower down on your list now. That'd be my right. take. So her physical exam, uh, as Brian alluded to, get, uh, shows an uncomfortable female. 
who has a normal skin exam, normal HENT. She's tachycardic with a regular rhythm, normal pulses, equal breath sounds bilaterally, uh, soft left uh, abdomen is soft, uh, left flank tender to palpation, and left groin is a little tender to palpation down in the pelvic region, but nothing on the right. Her abdomen is non-distended. Uh, her MSK exam shows no edema uh, and no uh, focal tenderness on palpation of the spine, and her neuro exam is alert and oriented times three and non-focal. So top three, what is in your differential now that we've whittled down the broad differential from the ring down using your history and physicals so wonderfully. Do I get to separate infected stone from a regular stone as two? Sure. <laughs> Maybe I'll just give you four. Because <laughs> uh, okay, I'm going to steal a and then I'm also going to steal ovarian torsion. Okay. All right. Dr. Plitt. Um, I'm thinking kidney stones, just given the sudden onset of pain. I think it's a little unusual to have that with uh, pilo or an epidural abscess. Um, and then I'll say ovarian torsion and then a herniated disc with radicular pain. Mm. Okay. Brian? I think this is a stone versus pilo as my first two. Um, there's components of both with the tenderness about patient on CVA usually goes more with the pilo. The history goes more with a stone. And if you want to get crazy, I'll say um, mesenteric ischemia because she was shooting black tar heroin in the left pericolic gutter. <laughs> All right. Well, on that cheerful note, uh, with a score of Dr. Plitt in the lead with 12, Dr. Ng with Dr. Drummond with nine, we are going to move on to the workup. During the workup, points will be awarded for prioritization of interventions backed by evidence-based medicine. Points will be deducted for poorly defensible workups or treatments. Uh, so again, uh, just to refresh, this is a 35-year-old female coming in by EMS with left back pain, 30 minutes of onset, severe radiation, uh, severe and radiating into the left pelvis, no fevers, uh, uh, and non-bloody, non-bilious emesis. Uh, she has left CVA tenderness uh, and some left uh, lower quadrant tenderness in the groin, uh, and otherwise her exam is remarkable, except that she is still screaming, and now she's starting to puke. So... I heard Dr. Drummond say that he wanted to uh, ask about allergies and go get some meds. What meds are we grabbing? For me, my first dose would be fentanyl because I was trying to get her under control. So in the acute agitated or I like short acting uh, meds because I don't really have the full history initially or, or a sense of what truly is going on. So I, you know, I'm using a Versed or fentanyl because I know it'll be gone in an hour or so. Um, for her, for pain control, I'm not going to use Versed, I'll use fentanyl, and I do uh, usually 100 of fentanyl in these patients. And you're like, well, that's what's the starting dose, and I start at 25 or 50. Well, it's a weight base, so it's one to two uh, mics per kg, and everyone gets 100. So I think that's uh, a reasonable dose. And then follow on, you know it's going to be gone in 30 to 60 minutes, so I would follow based on what my exam and everything was afterwards. Fair enough. All right. Um, with the uh, high likelihood of either stone versus pyelonephritis, uh, Vivian, are you at all worried about giving this patient something else like ketorolac uh, for the uh, NSAID relief 
and trying to relieve the spasm in someone who might have a kidney stone? The short answer is no. Um, I'm not worried about giving an NSAID in this patient. I think the one caveat to that is the supposed concern of uh, prosplenin inhibiting medication in the setting of pregnancy. But we're going to check the pregnancy test. But for the most part, the likelihood is that she's probably not pregnant. So it doesn't make me stop um, that consideration. So you can give an IV Ketralac. You can also give a PO ibuprofen. There's actually no difference in pain management for either of those medications as proven by three studies in the 1990s. And then that myth was busted in 2007 by Aura et al. So you can do either, but we all know that patients really like those medications going in their eyelids because they feel like they're getting some treatment. So I would go ahead and have some anti as well. But uh, there isn't really any information or literature that shows it affects any renal function either. So again, I'd rather get the patient's pain under control and give them an antispasmodic if stone is on my differential um, in conjunction with their opioid that Brian gave them. Interesting. All right. Well, Jenny, you get to pick uh, the antiemetic to get her to stop puking. What are you reaching for? I'll probably do Zofran. <laughs> but um, just in addition to what Viv was saying, if we're really thinking this is a kidney stone and she's a moderate risk on the stone clinical tool, um, especially if she's got hydro on her ultrasound that I performed, um, so if we're thinking, you know, kidney stones are higher on the list, according to the EAU guidelines, they usually, they said NSAID is a first choice for analgesia for kidney, kidney stones. There's another study published, um, IV morphine and Contorlac is superior to either drug alone for the treatment of acute renal colic. Um, and that's a prospect of double blinded RCT that showed, you know, the use of both of them together, uh, is superior. So I'm usually reaching for morphine and Toradol as long as she isn't pregnant because it is a class uh, C if you're under 30 weeks and a class D if you're greater than 30 weeks in pregnancy. Excellent. I would like to argue, however, that in those studies that Jenny referenced, they did find more adverse side effects in those people who did receive the opioid. So I agree with the regimen because I would probably do the same thing, but I would also be mindful of um, hypotension and nausea and any other side effects from the opioids. Excellent point. And you can avoid a lot of that hypotension and nausea if you actually pre-dose with Benadryl if you're using um, uh, morphine. Uh, you could use hydromorphone. You don't need to, but uh, the only pr uh, prevention of antihistamine release from morphine-induced nausea uh, is uh, Benadryl. So if you're doing higher dose morphine, which you should be doing weight-based at 0.1 mg per kg as your initial dose, uh, give them 25 of Benadryl IV, uh, and that will prevent your phone calls from your nursing staff as well as improve your patient's uh, situation. A Drummond cocktail. That's a Drummond cocktail for you all. You need a hell doll for the Drummond cocktail. <laughs> With and also, I actually, uh, I would use, I use Reglan in my kidney stones and I have no data to back this up, but I'm using the um, smooth muscle promotility that it seems to have in other areas and I haven't seen any studies on this, so I don't have any data, but sometimes the absence of evidence is not the, um, the fact that it doesn't work. It just- The evidence of absence? That's the other thing, or abstinence <laughs> is ab evidence, or- You must master your rage or else your rage will become your master. <laughs> That's right. So I use that for hoping if there is a stone, there's a pro-motility component. And also in patients that are acutely nausea or vomiting, 
Um, you know, we don't know. Maybe there's a gastroparesis component to this lady. She's a diabetic. Um, so maybe that's going to be a little bit more Excellent. beneficial. I don't think Zofran's bad. I just, I end up going with Reglan. And guess what? You could give both Zofran and Reglan if they're still vomiting. That's true. Wow. Use them in conjunction. All right. So nurses are eager to get this patient to stop puking and stop screaming. So they go run for your medications. Meanwhile, you've got uh, IV access. You've got the patient, uh, patient on a, a cardiac monitor. And uh, you've got uh, blood that's being drawn. Uh, so what blood work are you going to be sending for? Why do we put them on a monitor? Is that a waste of monitors? I have a question. Why because every oral board case is IVO2 monitor. I mean, this is not a cardiac case. Let's be honest. We don't need a monitor. So that may be true. However, uh, <laughs> I, I can't remember the last time I personally put someone on a monitor. So uh, I, do you feel, I, 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 I don't necessarily feel strongly enough to take the patient off of a monitor to say, <laughs> put that monitor down, helpful tech. Um, instead, <laughs> we just let it roll. The only time to take them off the monitor is to take them to the bathroom to get your urine sample so Excellent. that you don't have to wait indefinitely for it. Okay. So patient doesn't getting, feel like she can right. pee right now. Um, so we get uh, some blood work. What blood work are you going to be sending, Jenny? I would do a BMP. I really want to know her renal function. Um, and a pregnancy test. If, if she really can't pee, I hate waiting on the urine pregs. Um, but those I think are the two most important things. I feel realistically, I usually go to CBC too, to look for some leukocytosis. I agree. And I that CBC because that safe alert she caught earlier. And that, that safe alert, no. you know. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I also hate waiting on a urine pregnancy test if it's going to affect my decision-making. So all right. Um, so anyone uh, interested in doing some IV lidocaine on this patient? It was the hot new thing to try to help numb up your kidney stone intravenously. So according to the safety and efficacy of IV lidocaine for pain management in the ED, a systematic review, um, this was a study on six RCTs, lidocaine, uh, basically at the end of the day, it, I think it needs more evidence that a couple studies show that it may be beneficial for renal colic. Um, and then a couple others, it did not show that. So I think, you know, we need more evidence, um, especially because there were about 20 adverse outcomes in that study and 225 patients. All right. So we do get the patient adequately controlled. She stops puking. <clears throat> she stops uh, writhing in pain and she's able to go to the bathroom. So you get a urine sample from her. Uh, the blood is coming back. Uh, you did indeed do your uh, point of care ultrasound and you see mild left-sided hydronephrosis and with an absent uh, ureteral jet and no visualized stone. Um, your CBC comes back with a white count of 15.6 and a normal differential, otherwise normal. Your BMP is completely normal, except for a glucose of 245. 
uh, your uh, urine pregnancy is negative. And the urinalysis that she just gave you shows some moderate leukocyte esterase and 11 white blood cells per high power field with some present bacteria and moderate squamous cells. So I'd like to spend a little time talking about this urine sample because I feel like that's the urine sample I always get every time I order one on a patient who I just narked and uh, anti-emetic'd into being able to give me a urine sample. So how are you going to approach this uh, urine, Vivian? So the first thing I see is that it's a dirty tent because there's moderate squings. So then the very next question I'm going to ask, which I think we reviewed in the history, is whether or not she has any urinary symptoms. And I believe her answer was no. Correct. Just plank pain. So if you look at the IDSA guidelines for simple cystitis, it talks about treating patients with questionable UAs only if they're symptomatic. And so the question becomes, if she's not symptomatic here, then do you really need to treat this as an effective stone if that's what she has? The caveat to that, however, is that according to Wallen et al. in 2017, um, which is a urologic study, they looked at all patients who required some kind of urologic intervention, either shockwave lithotripsy or endoscopic intervention, and talk specifically about UAs and urine cultures and whether or not you needed to prophylactically treat patients if they were going to, to be getting some kind of anticipated therapy. So in their world and their literature, um, infected stone leading into bacteremia and sepsis was their most common um, complication rate from intervention. And so they talked about actually preemptively and prophylactically treating patients with antibiotics based on the guidelines of the community, regardless of what the UA said. And if you had a urine culture and your intervention was delayed, all the better because then you can actually do it based on sensitivities. So, so I think the answer to that depends because we have an ultrasound that is suspicious for stone, but we don't see one. And so the question becomes, are any of us going to follow this up at the CT? And so I would actually hold my antibiotic question at this point because this patient might go home. So the idea of treating this case would not be treating it because you think that the patient has an infection per se, but treating it because you think a urologist may do an intervention down the line and treating it would put that, uh, put the patient at less risk at that point. Is that correct? Correct. Excellent. Okay. Actually, Frank Walter did a study, um, looking at squamous cells as predictors of bacterial contamination in urine samples. And he showed that actually it's really unreliable just saying that, you know, if you see that the urine has squamous cells does not necessarily mean it's dirty. So there is a good percent. In fact, the majority is still cultured positive for UTI. So I would actually call this an infection. Um, I think I would treat this as an infection and I would definitely CT this given my concern for an infected kidney stone. If it, if it wasn't, if the urine, uh, does not, if I wasn't concerned about an infection, I think I could, would just ultrasound this patient and call it a day. But now I think it's probably important to identify uh, the stone and if it's an obstructing stone because I'm concerned more about infection. Brian? Were there any red blood cells in this urine? None. Fascinating. Ah, so, interesting. Was, but not <laughs> all stones have blood cells in their urine, Brian. I, 
not saying that it does or doesn't. I'm just asking the obvious question I don't feel that was answered in the initial one. So um, the other thing, did they comment on how many squames? They just gave us a moderate and mm-hmm. they didn't give us a range in the white blood cells. They just said 11, right? Mm-hmm. So this is 11, to, 11 to 20. You can, if, if you're looking for a range, it would be in the 11 to 20 range. 20 range. Yeah. I mean, this is, um, I agree. So uh, asymptomatic bacteria, you know, we, we can get in a minutia on urines. I, I think this is a hotly debated, you know, because we can talk about whether squamous make it contaminated or not contaminated. We could then argue, well, just because it's culture positive doesn't mean it's an infection. It means there's bacteria present in the urine, but doesn't necessarily imply infection of asymptomatic bacteria. So, you know, it becomes a very circular argument when you start, you know, dicing out urines. And I I think as a broader perspective, we probably overtreat a lot more urines than we should. Um, And, you know, it's just weird. I, I, uh, you have to know what your asymptomatic bacteria rate is. That plays into it. In this lady, if I had, I first off, I actually wouldn't do the ultrasound. So I'll throw that out as a guy who does ultrasound. I've stopped doing ultrasounds for kidney stones. So you can follow up that question if you want. I would have just seen teeter as a non-con. Um, and that would have given me all my answers after I had her pregnancy test. And then I would make a decision with the urine. So I would not start her on antibiotics based on that urine alone. If I had a negative CT for stone and she had flank tenderness and that urine, I would treat her for pilo. If she has a stone and no urinary symptoms, and this was sudden onset with that urine, I would probably send her home if I could control her pain. If I couldn't control her pain, I would admit her for pain control and discuss the case with urology. So I think there's a lot of variables in this presentation right now that it would be hard for me to come hard and fast on what I'm going to do based on a murky urine. So I would ask for uh, more information before that decision, but no, I'm not pushing the sepsis button and firing all cylinders. It sounds like everyone is going to be getting the CT scan on this lovely lady and everyone is uh, concerned about this urine unless they can find an alternate uh, source. But even then, uh, Vivian and Jenny, it sounds like you're going to treat this regardless whether you find a stone or not. I would. I would treat it if it were stone and I would probably treat it as a clinical palynephritis. Yeah, because of the flank pain. All right, so you get your CT scan, and we get a non-con CT that shows an eight millimeter obstructing stone at the UVJ with fat stranding around the kidney and the ureter. So now we have this information, and Brian, before we mo- uh, move on with it, I want to ask you uh, why you stopped doing ultrasounds at the bedside on these patients. Um, so to me, so I've I've changed my practice over the years. I, initially, it was uh, CT everybody that had a stone because you got to find it. Um, we then had ultrasound and we said, well, we could do an ultrasound and see hydro and check some jets compared to the other side. And then you could hold on the stone. And then I was like, okay, well, let's do that. Um, and then it was, well, doesn't always give us the answer. Maybe we don't have to CT all the first times, or maybe we only CT first time stones, but if this is like your stone, you don't need a CT. 
And to be honest, you really don't even need the ultrasound because it doesn't change anything if I can control your pain and make sure you don't have an infection. So then we started decreasing those. And then it's like, well, first time stones, even in uh, young people, if they get better and their urine's clean, I don't even need to image that. What's the, what am I doing, right? What does the ultrasound do? So to me, the ultrasound has lessened what I do and whether I order a CT scan. And for, in terms of what am I doing with these patients? Number one is pain control. If you can't control the patient's pain and you think it's a stone, you're not going to be able to send them home. So you've got to control their pain. And then you're looking for an infection. And an ultrasound doesn't help with either pain control or an infection. Um, so it doesn't help me in those regards. And then if I can't control the pain or an infection, even if I got an ultrasound, I'm still going to need a CT scan because I'm going to be talking to a urologist and they're going to want to know what that shows. And I can't give them in the ultrasound and say, I saw maybe a nephrolith or I didn't have a jet. Like they're going to be like, well, that's useless. Um, so to me, if I was in a resource poor area and I didn't have a scanner, I think it has a, a role. It helps answer some questions. But for me now in the emergency room, it doesn't help unless I said the only time I possibly use it, you have a totally undifferentiated patient. You don't think you can get to a scanner and I've, I'm ultrasounding the aorta and a fast and the kidneys and I'm just looking at everything in the belly. The kidney so just gets in the way. <laughs> right. It just gets in the way. So that's how my practice has kind of evolved over the last, you know, 15 years. So where I'm at now, I just don't, I wish I had a role for it, but I just don't feel it changes what I do. Therefore I don't do it. Fair enough. I think for me, I, it may make, help me avoid a CT scan. So if the patient is young, um, they don't have signs of infection on their UA I don't have an alternative diagnosis. They've got good kidney function. They've got good follow-up and I have high suspicion for a stone. I ultrasound them. If it's mild hydro, I wouldn't CT them. I would send them for follow-up, give them a trial of passage. But if I saw severe hydro or if they have signs of infection, their pain isn't controlled, they're older, um, that's when I'm, I'm jumping to the CT scan. And they, the New England Journal of Medicine published a study on ultrasound versus CT for suspected nephrolithiasis. And they showed that um, they randomized people to either CT scan, a POCUS by emergency physician or POCUS by radiologist. And they showed that when you start with ultrasound, it you have lower six-month radiation exposure without differences in high-risk diagnoses like AAA, um, serious adverse events, pain scores, return visits, or hospitalizations. And I'm not saying you can't use ultrasound. What I'm saying is I'm even like, it doesn't alter my CT rate, I guess. So in those studies, you're saying I'm going to ultrasound to decrease my radiation in CTs. And I think that proves, proves out in the literature. My argument is say, well, if you don't need even ultrasound them or CTM, do you, mm -hmm. you know, is that a reasonable approach in kidney stone patients? And I think it is. I think there's a population that you don't have to image um, in kidney stones. And so that's pushing it to a different step. And so if it doesn't change that outpatient algorithm for me, then I don't think the ultrasound, uh, helps me if, if that makes sense. Sure. All right. So and ultrasound's not showing the stones. So 
No, not yeah, always. Be pretty big. All right. So uh, now with this information, knowing that you've got an eight millimeter obstructing kidney stone at the UV, UVJ, um, the patient's pain is improved. Uh, she's not nauseous anymore. She feels so much better. And it happened right after she got back from CT. She feels 100% better right after CT because that never happens. Um, and uh, she comes in and she says, Doc, I feel great. Thank you so much. Um, who is going to be admitting this patient and who is going to send them home? Vivian, admit or discharge? I think if she meets all of their criteria for discharge, then she can go home. Okay. So um, with the caveat, because we're going to talk about the passing rate of stones. But uh, Corvo and Wang in 2019, they have a paper on kidney and ureteral stones, the management and treatment of it. So the admission criteria are urosepsis, intractable vomiting, infection with the stone obstruction greater than 15 millimeters, bilateral stones, a single kidney or transplanted kidney with obstruction, intractable pain, or significantly elevated creatinine. And I can't remember what her renal function was for this case, but we'll just say that's normal. So she um, has what we're considering potentially an infection with obstructions proven by CT, um, which is one of their criteria that makes it an emergency, a urologic emergency, both according to the European Association of Urology and the American Urologic Association. So by definition, with an eight millimeter obstructing stone, she mandates at least a urology consultation at this point. They will probably want to do an intervention is my guess. But uh, if you go hard and fast, technically she would be admitted. That being said, clinically, I might give her a trial of passage because the majority of these stones will pass but your pr probability of passing decreases if you're greater than six millimeters. So Jenny, yes or no, admit, discharge. Unless she passed that stone in the CT scanner, I'm admitting her for uh, an obstructing infected stone. All right, Brian, admit, discharge. She's pain-free, she's getting discharged. And I, I, I wanna bring up what, you know, we're talking, um, the CT read says obstructing stone. So there is a difference between radiologic obstruction and urologic obstruction. Every stone by definition obstructs urinary flow because it is in the ureter, which blocks flow that leaves. Therefore, radiologically, any stone will cause some kind of an obstruction. That is different than a urologic obstruction, meaning change in creatinine, change in urinary habits. And so there is a difference between those two. So we're like, oh, it's an obstructing stone. You can also argue every hydro, therefore, is also an obstructing stone, which is silly because then you're like, well, I diagnosed the stone by ultrasound, so therefore they're always obstructed. Therefore, I should admit every ultrasound that I see with hydro. So we get into these weird arguments um, that like, oh, I see them and then I'm going to discharge them because they had hydro. Well, that's an obstructing stone. So to me, there is a difference. And so... One thing that we have to point out is pain. And as Vivian pointed out, is all stones can pass. There are people that pass stones that are ridiculous in size. And the location also matters. So this location at the UVJ is important to me because it is lower down. It's not higher up 
um, closer to the renal pelvis. So this person after CT could have just passed the stone. It could have rolled into the bladder and come out, especially if she all of a sudden got pain-free. That is not an uncommon thing for someone to have happen. But I think there's a difference when we talk about obstructing uh, stone. So we use that term probably not the appropriate way. And I would also argue that there's a difference in our disposition if this was in the community versus the academic center. I have never had a pain-free kidney stone ever get admitted or intervened on by urologist unless they were floridly septic. They sent all of them home. All you can't of have pain if you're altered. Right. Yeah. So, but if people need, you know, if I got to get enough stents in place to, um, you know, get my numbers up for my urologic residency, I may take a whole lot more in an academic center. The other thing, you know, I think we talk about, well, I'm going to do this or I'm going to have an intervention. How many of us do want a catheter placed in our ureter and to leave it there for a period of time and have someone go up your urethra with a tube and all right, Brian, we get the point. I, I back up Brian just likes Brian to push then. until he finally gets himself muted. Something between <laughs> infinite morphine and putting things up as urethra, I think, clinches it. Can I back up to something Brian said? Please. Uh, going back to your renal function, you mentioned um, having an altered renal function as a reason for a consultation. For patients who are otherwise healthy who have two kidneys, having a stone yeah. on one side is not going to change your renal function unless you also have a concomitant reason to have an AKI, like dehydration or something else going on. If you have two kidneys and one of them works well, then that normal side is going to compensate for the side that has a stone. So we all have to keep that in mind that even though we get a chem panel, most of the time it's not actually going to change our management unless you are a single kidney patient or a transplanted kidney patient with only one functioning kidney at risk for the stone. All right. So let's, uh, if we're thinking about sending this patient home, what interventions are you going to do for this patient in order to keep them from coming back to the emergency department? How are you going to prevent that recidivism and make sure this stone passes? Adequate pain management. All right. Let's talk about what that means. What are you going to do, Viv? What are you going to prescribe this patient for adequate pain management? This patient Infinite morphine? <laughs> I'm sure many patients would love to have infinite morphine from the most famous Dr. Drummond. Um, <laughs> if this patient has no contraindications, I would be prescribing around-the-clock NSAIDs as step number one, followed by very likely some kind of outpatient narcotic as a breakthrough for when the, that stone starts to creep down that ureter or into the bladder and out the urethra. There's arguments to talk about whether or not you need medication expulsive therapy and the literature is all over the place. But uh, the summary statement, because I know Jenny's going to steal this one for me if I don't say it now. Better get it. <laughs> um, is that a lot of people consider alpha blockers like cantalosin or calcium tunnel blockers like nifedipine as medication expulsion therapy as an adjunctive for kidney stones. But the long and the short of it is that there is no hard data in the systematic reviews um, or the meta-analyses that say they really show a significant benefit. Tantalosin shows a small benefit, um, and nifedipine 
definitely has more side effects. So the general consensus is to not use methamphetamine because of the side effects. Most people will reference the Picardinol paper from 2015 that did a randomized control trial looking at cantibosin against placebo against methamphetamine, and they concluded that the adjusted odds ratio taking account all types stones shows no difference between any of them. But if you actually look at their data table and look at those stones that are at the UVJ, as Brian mentioned, it does favor cantilosin. It's just when you take everything into account and uh, do the statistic based on the location of the stone, the size and the medication, there was no overall benefit. But if you take a subgroup, those people like this patient that has a distal ureteral stone may benefit from cantilosin. But if you're a smart doctor, you tell them to take it at night because it causes hypotension and you don't want them syncopizing in the morning. Excellent point. Jenny, any other suggestions? I think my biggest one would I, I would not send this patient home to die from urosepsis. So <laughs> I'm kidding. If I, if I, I mean, I'm not kidding, but if I was if, if urology came down and was like, we can get them follow up tomorrow morning and, you know, maybe. Jenny, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Yes, I would uh, prescribe vigorous sex to this patient <laughs> because there is a study done in Turkey showing that those who were uh, having sex three to four times a week had increased stone passage as compared to those that were not. So, I would like to point out that that study randomized men in this study to vigorous sex three to four times a week because of the anatomical differences between men and women, and it only worked in men. In this patient, it's a 35-year-old female. It's a it's a low, uh, I don't think it's a very high evidence study. <laughs> Still get points. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, uh, edging out in the lead, uh, at the end of uh, the dispo, uh, we've got Dr. Vivian Ng, who's ahead with 43, Dr. Jenny Plitt, who is uh, in close second with 42, and Dr. Drummond at 22. So now we are going to head on to the dispo. During the dispo, points are awarded for a concise and convincing admission call or a clear layperson level discussion of the discharge instructions. Admission calls should be top-down with the most important information first, riding the fine line between overselling and underselling the admission. Discharge instructions should include shared decision-making, follow-up instructions, and explicit return precautions. And, of course, evidence-based medicine is always welcome. All right, uh, so in the dispo, uh, Dr. Plitt, uh, insistent that this patient is going to develop urosepsis at any moment, is going to admit her patient to the hospitalist service, and the hospitalist is calling back. Hi, this is Dr. Hospitalist. Hi, this is Dr. Plitt in the emergency room. Um, I have a 35-year-old female with history of diabetes who came in with acute onset of left-sided flank pain, tachycardia. Um, CT showed an eight millimeter obstructing stone with fat straining around her kidney. Her UA shows evidence of infection with 11 WBCs, leukocytes, and bacteria. Her creatinine is on the high side of normal 1.1. She has received tortol and morphine with decent pain control, and we have consulted urology, but we would like to bring her in for an infected obstructing stone. You know, I got all these COVID patients. We are so backed up. I mean, she's kind of, 
I don't know. Do you think you could just give her like a dose of ceftriaxone and maybe see her tomorrow instead of having to bring her in? You know, according to the EAU guidelines, which I'm sure you've read, um, if there are any signs of urosepsis, which she has with her leukocytosis and tachycardia and an obstruction of that stone, you know, she's high risk for urosepsis and a really bad outcome. So I think she needs to come in. Well, I mean, it's not like she's diabetic or anything. And I, oh, wait. (laughs) One more reason, sir. Oh, gosh. Okay. All right. Um, just make sure we have blood cultures and then I'll admit her. I'll take oh, her. I did that when she hit the door. I need to, I need to make sure that we, uh, uh, I read the EAU guidelines. I don't keep up with European stuff. I mostly read Australian and New Zealand guidelines. So I'll have to catch don't up. You with you. It's also, it's also in the American guidelines. So it's all the guidelines. <laughs> All right. So moving on, we have uh, Dr. Vivian Ng, who's going to actually send this patient home with good pain control and talk to her uh, modeling expert discharge instructions. So uh, doctor, what can you tell me about my tests? So your tests are overall very reassuring. We did find an eight millimeter stone stuck in the tube that connects the kidney down to your bladder. Is that big? It's on the big side, but I think you have a good chance of passing since you're fairly pain-free right now. So we know that we have an adequate pain regimen that we can send you home on and do a trial. Um, Most people tend to prefer to try to pass their stones at home rather than get intervention by urology because those have a lot of side effects and complications from surgical intervention. So what I'd like to do, since you're feeling better, is to get you home. Um, I'm going to plan on giving you some antibiotics because I don't want you developing an infection from the stone. And I'd like to to have you on a pain regimen. So if I remember correctly, you said you didn't have any allergies to medications. So we're going to have you do ibuprofen around the clock three times a day with food to make sure you don't develop any uh, stomach issues. And then I'll send you home probably with some Percocet for breakthrough pain if the ibuprofen is not tolerating. I like that plan because it gives you a couple of different uh, medications on board to control your pain and also help with the spasms in your ureter. We're going to send you home with a urine strainer because I like to see if you can catch the stones. Since it's your first episode, we like to often analyze these stones and see what kind of stone you have and then see if we can prevent you from getting them in the future. But approximately 50% of people do have recurrence of stones in the first five years. So it's something to be mindful of. So you're saying I might get this again? Yeah, unfortunately, it's very possible. So increased hydration is important to making sure you're really hydrated. And for the time being, I'd have you reduce your salt intake and reduce um, animal protein intake as well, because those diet modifications have been shown to decrease recurrence and decrease stones on the whole. Oh, man. All right. So this is a lot of change. Well, I mean, this was so bad. I don't ever want to feel anything like this ever, ever again. Um, it, so is it out? Is it done now? Or it, like, is it going to hurt when it comes out of my bladder? It'll probably hurt somewhat when it comes out of your bladder. That's why I want you on this pretty strict pain regimen so that we can keep your pain managed. All right. Well, I mean, what if it doesn't get better? I mean, what do I like? what would I need to come back for? Yeah. So most stones pass between two and four weeks. So since yours is a little bit on the larger side, I think you would probably notice when it comes out, you'll probably have a bit of spike of pain when it does. But if your pain gets worse, 
um, or you're having more symptoms of a urinary tract infection, like that burning with pain, or you're having frank blood out of your urine, if you develop a fever or you don't think your pain is managed well at all, we would certainly welcome you to come back so we can reevaluate you and make sure that we get you treated the right way. All right. Um, is, is this something that my doctor can take care of or do I need to see a specialist for this or? So if you're able to pass the stone and collect it, we would have you ultimately see a urologist to do some lifestyle changes, make sure you don't develop these in the future. Depending on your insurance, you might need a referral from your primary care doctor. So I'll give you the names of a urologist here at our institution. And uh, if you don't have a PCP, I can give you some names of clinic follow-up and I can certainly get you a two-day appointment with one of our clinics if you don't have one. All right. I think I'm good. All right. Excellent job to both of you uh, with a great sell to the hospitalist and a great uh, reassurance to the patient discharge. This month's winner, Dr. Vivian Ng, congratulations. Uh, you oh, are part of medicine. So thanks for inviting me on this podcast. I was very surprised to have won this on my first shot, eking out my good friend, Dr. Vin Clit. <laughs> Um, so I think what I want to talk about today is the fact that we emergency physicians are working in a pretty tough environment at the moment. So uh, it, it was mentioned at the forefront that I'm one of the fellowship directors for stimulation. So one of my bread and butter things I love to teach is to be a team player in the emergency department. So one of those is closest communication. I am a big proponent of learning people's names. And given the state of things right now, we've got a lot of travelers and a lot of extra nursing and a lot of staff who's finishing their uh, studies and joining up on our team. So learn people's names, especially since we don't see people's faces. Learn to do the little things that aren't part of your job. So we're all there to take care of our patients as one team. Figure out how to put a cardiac monitor on, even though Brian Drummond doesn't want to put a cardiac monitor on certain patients. Know where those leads are. Know how to put a pulse ox on a patient's finger and know how to take a blood pressure. Figure out where your IV supplies are because you may be that person who has to drop an ultrasound guide IV or an EJ in a person who's got bad access during sepsis. So my tips and tricks are to know your equipment, know your people, be a good team player, uh, learn all your pharmacology so that you can run a code part, which honestly in a code is probably one of the most fun things for me to do in all honesty, rather than running that code is to hand off the medications. But there are lots of parts to our job that isn't just doctoring that is great for patient care, great for team morale, and ultimately is perfection for our patients. Excellent. Very well said, very encouraging. And thank you all very much. Um, we will talk to everybody next time.